0: Welcome to Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm a professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Farm, ETSU's Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. It is ASCO entree time. Last week, gave you a little appetizers, a little moose booze to get started before we really dig into these. You need more time to dig in because there's a lot to talk about. I've got seven studies I'm going to go over, hopefully in about 30 minutes. Um, seven studies, six publications, two abstract um, presentations as well, oral presentations. I'm going to start with what uh, a lot of people are saying was the most impressive study presented at ASCO, but not one that got the tandem New England Journal Medicine publication. I'm talking about Sonia. This is a phase three study from the Dutch. Uh, uh, the presenter lead author here is Gabe, uh, I think, Sunka. S-O-N-K-E is how you pronounce that. While my last name is, in fact, Dutch in origin, I don't speak Dutch, but I think it's Gabe Sonke. really fascinating uh, and well-done study of about a thousand patients with, a little over a thousand patients with uh, hormone-positive HER2-negative metastatic breast cancer. So The most common type of, of breast cancer, metastatic, a- and here in the States, you know, the common approach for somebody like this would be um, letrozole or nastrazole plus a cyclin-dependent kinase inhibitor. Uh, And that's the standard of care based on really robust PFS benefits um, and and maybe some overall survival benefit. What this study presupposes, maybe it's not the preferred first-line regimen. Really wonderfully done design looking at sequence. Uh, And when you're looking at sequence, it makes sense uh, for a disease state like metastatic breast cancer, especially bone-only metastatic disease, where there are going to be multiple progression events, that the first progression event is probably not that predictive of overall survival, and a second progression-free survival time to second progression-free survival is a better endpoint. That was uh, the primary endpoint in this study, where half the patients got uh, a letrozole or an a non-steroidal anti. Um, uh, Anti-androgen uh, an inhibitor, inhibitor, aromatase inhibitor, plus a cyclin-dependent kinase inhibitor, or they just got their letrozole or anastrozole, and then upon progression, they either got fulvestrant, if they had already had a prior CDK4/6 inhibitor, or fulvestrant plus a CDK4/6 inhibitor. So essentially, what's this ask? What this study is asking is, does it matter whether or not you get the cyclin-dependent kinase inhibitor on the first line? Or the second line. That's what they're asking. Um, Looking at PFS2 and then overall survival as a secondary endpoint. Um, And they found, um, you know, after 37, almost after more than three years, um, there was no significant difference in progression-free survival 2 with a numerical advantage towards getting the cyclin-dependent kinase inhibitor first. um, uh, Median PFS2 of 31 months versus 28 months, so three months. Uh, maybe saving, uh, you know, without progression. However, their hazard ratio for overall survival was 0.98, almost exactly one, with a 95% confidence. Or I think it's 95% confidence interval of 0.8 to 1.2. So no difference in in long-term survival for this, and that would be enough to to have me saying what a great what a great study. Um, but they also looked at uh, toxicity, and you could look at say percentage of patients with diarrhea or neutropenia. And they would probably be the same because these drugs cause that. But they looked at the number of events because the longer you're on the drug, the more diarrhea, the more neutropenia, the more QT prolongation, if you're on ribocyclic, for example. Uh, and I should mention it was up to the physician's choice, which CDK for six inhibitors use, palbocyclic, abemocyclic, ribocyclic. Uh, so a lot more toxic events in those folks who got the CDK-4,6 inhibitor up front because they were on it for a much longer period of time. So even though there was no difference in overall survival and there was no statistically significant difference in uh, PFS2, the folks who got the the cyclin-dependent kinase 4,6 inhibitor up front were on it for a lot longer time, which means more toxicity and more cost despite not conferring any overall survival advantage. Uh, so it was more costly, more toxic, and it didn't lead to an overall survival difference. Um, and the patients who did not get the upfront cdk 46 inhibitor, at least in this Dutch study that was funded by um, the the Netherlands Organization for Health Research and Development and Dutch health insurance, health insurance, they say it saved um, the Dutch about 200000 per person by deferring uh, your palbociclib or your ribocyclib, etc., cetera, for second-line setting. Um, which uh, I, would, um, I would love to see that adopted here in our country. Uh, to me, it makes sense that the data looks strong. Uh, probably uh, should, uh, should comment. We should wait for the full publication to read it, but um, really um, the type of research that, that should be done uh, uh, in oncology patients. Okay, so now let's talk about ADARA. Uh, talked about it a lot. Um, for those of you who don't remember, this is adjuvant. OC-mertinib for um, uh, EGFR-mutated non-small cell lung cancer after resection, plus or minus adjuvant chemo. So they could have had, I think, about half from this had adjuvant chemo. This is the final overall survival analysis. Um, And they get three years of OC-mertinib or placebo. Three, I mean, it's like, I don't know, a gajillion dollars to do three years of OC-mertinib. The DFS benefit was the primary endpoint um, I do want to point out here, you know, this was not a great, this was not a great study um, because, and this is what everyone was kind of waiting on, is that, all right, you, you know, sure, you have a lot of folks with stage 3b non-small cell lung cancer, or stage, not 3b, but stage 3 non-small cell lung cancer, a lot of them are gonna progress um, after their surgery. They're gonna have recurrence, right? And those folks, you could probably give them oc and they could probably do pretty well. We know that OC is is a little bit better than Erlotinib. Gefitinib has better CNS penetration, so better for uh, for treating uh, occult CNS disease or even frank CNS disease. Um, what we know is that, um, you know, it was about a third of patients uh, in the control arm who progressed and got OC at some point. There were a little over two hundred progression events. Ideally, all 200 would get you know, therapy afterwards. They all didn't get therapy. Some may have been too sick at the time of progression. So 184 got subsequent treatment. Of those 184, 79 got OC Mertinib. So 79 people getting OC Mertinib divided by the 205 who got any, uh, who had recurrence, that's 38% who had OC Mertinib at some point. Unlike Sonia, that very correctly asked the question, do we need to give the expensive drug first or second? We know the answer from Sonia is that it didn't make a difference in metastatic breast cancer. Here, we don't know. We don't know if OC-mertinib in the adjuvant setting is better than everyone getting OC-mertinib upon disease progression. And, and Vinay Prasad in, from plenary Sessions talks all, in greater detail than I could about uh, the imaging uh, deficiencies in the study and maybe not catching uh, occult CNS disease at baseline and, and catching these folks if they do progress right away. So we don't know. We don't know. Um, but it's going to be an overall survival benefit. It's published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and all the guidelines are going to put it as a Category 1 recommendation because of this overall survival benefit. When patients Google this, it's going to see it prolongs survival. But we don't know if it prolongs overall survival compared to what we would do, which is give them oc burden at the sign of, of disease recurrence initially. Um, so it's, it's a sad sad thing. That's at our, Need to know about it. Everyone's going to get oc um, even though I, I'm not, you know. This is the other thing I'll say about it. I'm rambling. I'm sorry. And this should be the reason that we don't do disease-free survival as our primary endpoint here. Because disease-free survival, if that's your surrogate, it should predict for overall survival. And so our hazard ratios should be somewhat correlated. So the hazard ratio in the stage, uh, I think this is the stage 2 to 3 A population. The hazard ratio for disease-free survival was 0.2. Well, you would hope your overall survival benefit is about 0.2 as well. No, the the hazard ratio for overall survival is like 0.5. Okay, so it's really not close to the disease-free survival hazard ratio. And you can look at you know the 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 classic uh, laser pointer trick to see if there's a difference. You know you can fit, you know you can fit a dump truck in between the disease-free survival curves uh, in ADR, but you can you can I mean, you can fit a laser pointer in between the 5 year overall survival curve it's there there is there is a a sizable improvement in 5 year overall survival if you look at the stage 2A and 3A patients from 73% with placebo to 85% that's a delta 12% that's pr- that's very impressive um but we don't know what would happen if all those folks on placebo all of them would have got OC which we knew was better uh for for years now so um, I, it just doesn't make sense to me as well. I've said this before in talking about the study. Adjuvant therapy for three years. I, I'm not sure that we're curing people. We probably are keeping people alive longer, but you're. I don't think we're curing these folks. We're just, you know, pre-treating metastatic disease here. So, um, three years of OCD murder, a lot of cost, a lot of toxicity. Um, I, it's. What about one year? Maybe we could do one year, stop it, and then if they have, you know, recurrent six months later, 12 months later, you put it back on O.C. That, that I'd like to see that. What I don't want to see is what these people are doing. They're doing a five-year adjuvant study for O.C. Murtinib they talk about in the discussion of this. I just, crazy, crazy. Okay, moving on within lung cancer to, t- to Keynote 671. This is like Pembrolizumab's response almost. Not a response, but their, um, they're, uh, I guess... Comparative study to Checkmate 86 or to 816. So Checkmate 816 was neoadjuvant nivolumab plus chemo in non-small cell lung cancer, stage 1B to 3A. So Keynote 671 is is uh, neoadjuvant pembrolizumab plus chemo for uh, for non-small cell lung cancer. They are including a slightly different patient population. No 1B, stage 2, 3, and 3B and I think if you asked a lot of surgeons, they may say, you know, if you have an N2 disease, and this is 3B, some of these 3B patients, they, they're probably not surgically resectable. So these folks are getting, in this study, in the Pembro study, Keynote 671, they're getting neoadjuvant Pembro plus chemo, followed by adjuvant Pembro for 13 cycles, which did not happen in Checkmate 816, where it's just um, neoadjuvant uh, nivolumab. Now, in the neoadjuvant nivolumab plus chemo study, they, they had like a 24% pathologic complete response rate, meaning you cut out the tumor, you do the surgery, and in 24% of those, those tumors uh, analyses, there was no viable disease left compared to like 2% of those who just got chemo. We see 18.1% pathologic complete response rate in this study. Of course, we're seeing uh, more uh, longer two-year uh, event-free survival compared to not, getting, uh, to not getting Pembro, which we know it is active. Um, not a whole lot necessary to take away from this study. Uh, I do want to point, because we already have this from, from Checkmate 816, um, as I said before, neoadjuvant versus adjuvant chemo, um, You know, we're seeing more and more of that uh, because of these immunotherapy studies trying to, to move these drugs early in the front line. Um, the, you know, the big differences here are slightly different patient populations, so don't try to make those cross-trial comparisons as I just did. They're, they're really meaningless here. Um, what I will point out here for... For trainees, uh, and there are differences in the, the percentage of those who are PDL1 negative or high PDL1. Uh, this PEMBRO study had a higher percentage of patients that had high PDL1, like above 50%, and, uh, and a lower percentage of patients who were PDL1 less than 1%. So, a more heavily enriched PDL1 positive population here in this study compared to the nivolumab study, um, although they are in, uh, enrolling 3B patients here who are very likely to be metastatic. Uh, what I will point out here is that the overall survival curves for both these studies overlap for quite a period of time. In Checkmate 816, the overall survival um, curves overlap perfectly for six months. They didn't get any adjuvant uh, um, map in Checkmate 816. Uh, and then they start to separate. Here, they're almost perfectly overlapped for like 12 to 15 months. Remember, they got 13 weeks of adjuvant pembro. Uh, after their 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 neoadjuvant pembro and chemo in this study, and then you see the separation. Um, so certainly there's disease activity here. Uh, seeing more and more of this in practice, uh, and more evidence to support that besides just the the CheckMate 816, the map study. Okay, that um, is is uh, leads us to um, a, another big uh, study. This made the the papers, it made the news, and this is. Uh, An NCI-funded site, this is Prospect, and this is looking at um, maybe we should change how we treat rectal cancer. So uh, we think of colorectal cancer as the way we say it, as one disease. It's not in how it's treated uh, historically, whereas colon cancer is treated with surgery, then adjuvant chemo in the uh, the locally advanced setting, say stage stage 2, stage 3, for example, the uh, historical approach for rectal cancer has been neoadjuvant, chemo and radiation, then surgery and then maybe some chemo afterwards and uh, adding that radiation up front helps prevent local recurrence uh, as well as improving colostomy free survival, the need for uh, you know a colostomy bag and things like that. So this is asking all right let's not let's let's just do chemo, let's do full fox and see if that is as good or better than the traditional approach, which is uh, neoadjuvant, um, chemo radiation with five FU, uh, leucovorin and radiation up front, and they did that. They did the study. So they have uh, almost twelve hundred people in this study. Uh, it is a non-inferiority study, um, and they are looking at um, a non-inferiority margin of one point two nine, which I had never seen before, and uh, was was kind of quite quite odd. They're looking at disease-free survival here as their their primary endpoint. And those, yeah, disease-free survival. Uh, they do a nice job explaining in the methods where they got this one point two nine from. It correlates to a disease-free survival at five years. That's I think less than five percent. But they actually had like a it was like a, at a conference, and they had like surgeons and radiation oncologists, and they had patient um, advocates there. And they said, what would do we think would be meaningful as the upper limit of normal for our um, for our non-inferior margin? So it seems to be very rationally designed, uh, and I think that that is that is good. I should mention that these patients with, with rectal cancer are patients who would have been candidates for uh, for sphincter sparing, sparing surgery, meaning the type of surgery that retains the sphincter and would not need a colostomy uh, long-term. Uh, the The take-home point here is that those folks with this type of uh, rectal cancer, um, preoperative full fox was not inferior to, to chemo uh, radiation. Um, and this is the... the New England Journal of Medicine publication, um, if they did not, if their disease did not shrink by at least 20% on the full fox arm uh, in the neoadjuvant strain, they did go on to get radiation. Um, and most of them were suggested to get adjuvant chemotherapy afterwards, most of it being fulfox or Kapox. Um And that's great, that's great. What is really, I think, groundbreaking about this study is we get a publication in JCO at the same time looking at patient reported outcomes here. Um, And they do patient report outcomes kind of reported in two ways. One is during the neoadjuvant setting, like when you're getting the difference in treatment. And then a year later, 12 months later, when everything's done. And so in the neoadjuvant setting, the people getting Folfox reported less diarrhea than those getting 5-FU radiation. Now, here are all the things that um, that were better in the neoadjuvant setting if you got 5-FU and radiation. So you're getting radiation, 5-FU, no oxide flat. And these patients getting a historical approach reported in comparison to neoadjuvant Folfox. Less anxiety, less anorexia, less constipation, less depression, less dysphagia, less dyspnea, less edema, less fatigue, less mucositis, less nausea, less neuropathy, and less vomiting. So if you look at that, wow, patients really preferred getting chemo and radiation compared to Folfox because the chemo just was 5-FU and Warren nooxidoplatin. Now this is the curative setting and in the curative setting people and patients probably should be more willing to accept a little bit harder treatment for the hope promise of long-term survival uh, without toxicity and usually the effects of chemotherapy are short-lived uh, peripheral neuropathy is one that will stay with you but the fatigue, the mucositis, those things will improve when you're done with treatment. Now radiation can have some permanent um, and long-lasting effects So when they looked at the patient report outcomes 12 months later, the folks who got neoadjuvant FOLFOX reported less fatigue than those who got radiation up front and improved sexual function than those who got radiation because radiation can damage some of those nerves in that very sensitive area in and around the rectum. So uh, what this um, suggested as far as maybe not a change in practice, but certainly a new uh, option in practice where patients are presented with the side effect profiles of both treatments as it pertains to their disease biology and anatomy and what makes this sense for them so another option for patients uh which is great which means it's going to take more time in in these uh, locally advanced uh, rectal cancer patients to talk about their treatment options because now there's another good option to talk about okay now let's move into the malignant hematology section here this was uh, not a publication, but a presentation here of, um, and this is funded by NCI, and this is uh, patients with Hodgkin's lymphoma uh, ages uh, 12 and up, and actually about a, a quarter of these patients were, uh, were children under the age of 18. A thousand patients with um, stage 3 or 4 Hodgkin's lymphoma are randomized to either Brentuximab vedotin avd which was considered the standard regimen now based off of Echelon. Again, not a well-designed study either, but those states three to four Hodgkin's lymphoma patients or nivolumab AVD. So this is the backbone traditional Hodgkin's regimen, ABVD, but no bleomycin in either arm. So brentuxmab vedotin was kind of the the control here, and the nivolumab AVD is the experimental arm. Um, and they're looking here at... Um, uh, I believe. Let's see. This, they're looking at a, a progression-free survival here as their as their main endpoint, um, and the nivolumab had a better one-year event-free survival. Event-free survival. Um, so, all right, event-free survival. It's not overall survival. Does that mean we should switch to nevo just because of one-year EFS? I would usually say no. However. Nivolumab was safer. There was there was less transaminitis with nivolumab than the brintuximab arm. Less neuropathy, as you would expect. Um, less neutropenic fever. That's despite everyone in brintuximab arm getting um, filgrastom as, as mandated at GCSF here. Um, our one-year event-free survival uh, difference goes from 84% with brintuximab to 91%. That's a really nice, that's like a number need of about 12. Um, so uh, there was uh, there were four deaths on the nivolumab arm 11 with the pembrolizumab vidotin. A little bit less radiation uh, needed. Uh, two patients required radiation in the nivolumab arm versus four patients with the pembrolizumab vidotin. So, so long-term, maybe having less radiation will also lead to less um, uh, secondary malignancies uh, as well, which is a, a huge concern and it does impact long-term survival in these patients with Hodgkin's. We know that from, for example, the ABVD versus MOP studies from from, from 20 and 30 years ago. Okay, uh, wrapping up here with some CAR-T studies, we have the overall survival results from Zuma7. This is AxiCell or Yescarta in uh, large B-cell lymphoma. Patients who relapsed or had uh, refractory disease or relapsed within 12 months of their first uh, or finishing chemoimmunotherapy. We've got almost a four-year follow-up here um, it's really, uh, so we see an overall survival benefit here with axi cell compared to uh, chemo uh, and autologous stem cell transplant which had been the standard of care. Um, this is, I think, a nice uh, paper to for those of you trying to learn to interpret kaplan and curves. If we look at our hazard ratio here for overall survival it's 0.73, 95% CI of 0.54 to 0.98 so you know it doesn't cross once, significant, but this is a disease we hope to cure. So it's more useful, instead of looking at the median overall survival or the hazard ratio, look at your, your landmark overall survival endpoint. So if we look at the one-year overall survival, it's 76 versus 63 percent, okay, in favor of axi-cell. Now, one year's probably too soon. Two years, 60 per- and 51 percent, all right? See, the numbers went from 76 to 60 and 63 to 51, respectively. From year two to year three, we go from 60 to 56 percent in the AxiCell arm, 51 to 48 in the uh, the control arm and then from years three to years four we go from 56 to 55 48 to 46 we have plateaued here and we're curing an additional nine percent of people roughly an additional eight percent of people you know three and four years later with uh, with upfront uh, axi-cell for those who are eligible and can get it and are at a, a, a large enough center or near a large enough center that they can do this um, so this is moving up uh, had probably already been standard of care based on our um, our uh, progression-free survival and event-free survival. Uh, those cat curves are also striking in that they look like a waterfall that then turns into uh, a very flat stream, both for our PFS and event-free survival. What you would hope to see in the disease that is curative, and that is evidence that we are preventing progression and any event, any recurrence, any need for additional treatment. We are seeing that here in these cat curves. So very strong evidence. Uh, for for axi-cell CAR T in um, early relapse refractory large B-cell lymphoma, and this brings me to CARtitude 4, which is uh, SILTA cell or uh, standard of care maybe in quotes in little refractory multiple myeloma. No overall survival. Uh, uh, improvement shown here. Uh, we're looking at uh, progression-free survival uh, improvement, uh, pretty sizable here. With upfront, not upfront, but with uh, with CAR T compared to um, most of these folks are getting a daratumumab uh, and pomalidomide and dex as their regimen. Um, only about 24% of patients in this study had received daratumumab uh, at the time of their most recent progression event. Probably not consistent with our practice here. In the states where, where many folks are getting darA in the uh, in the first line setting, second line setting, you know most of these folks um, had had seen two or more lines of treatment, so a little odd that only twenty five percent had uh, had received tumab in the past, um, but you know a re- reasonable study design. I think maybe the the notable thing to take away from this is there were were lower rates of cytokine release syndrome and neurotoxicity with this same drug here than in cartitude one and in cartitude one those folks had already had everything so your bridging treatment to get them to keep them stable until they got to car probably was not re- reducing tumor burden too much here in Cell, they're getting the same daratumab pomalidomide dex type regimen that's going to have some effects you're going to debulk or reduce the disease burden which then when you give your car there's going to be less tumor to have cytokines to release to cause said Syndrome, so I think maybe that's the notable thing uh, to take away from, from this, from a big picture standpoint. Um, um, it uh, is probably worth waiting to see what our overall survival looks like. There's there's a drastic difference in progression-free survival here, but um, quite a bit of uh, uh, you know questions to remain about will that translate to overall survival in multiple myeloma a disease that is, um, as, as you'll hear a future guest on this podcast say, is like the type 2 diabetes of oncology. Treatment is very individualized. It can be a chronic disease in many patients, uh, and not everyone needs to be put on like a five-drug regimen uh, at the get-go. So that are those are the entrees uh, from ASCO uh, 2023, which is now uh, two weeks old. And I do apologize for not having all of that ready last week, but there was just so much to go over. Um, and so I needed some more time to digest to, to try to, you know, do the best I can on this podcast. So so thank you for listening. appreciate all the comments. Question from uh, for the listeners from one of uh, our fellows uh, has suggested to me that I put this on YouTube. Um, and, you know, I've got a face made for podcasting is what they say. So uh, if you guys think it'd be good to put some stuff on YouTube, let me know. I can create a channel. I don't know. Put the podcast out there on that way. If, if that's easier for folks or if you find yourselves on there preferring to listen that way, that's something I can do if there's really a groundswell of support for it. Um, but thank you for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at PharmDitnib. You can follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at OncoFromPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter.